if you invest with income in mind, with cash flow in mind, you know, take appreciation off the table, you're looking for safety. You're looking to basically an insurance policy to help you weather any storm. Real estate hits that bill. And the reason why it hits that bill is because if the market tanks tomorrow and I'm collecting rent from my tenants, what has really changed for me other than the underlying value of my assets, which I don't really give a crap about. I give more crap about basically how much that income that asset base is generating. But if the real estate prices go down by 50%, but I'm still generating the same income as before, how am I impacted? I'm not. You are listening to the Savvy Real Estate Investor Show, the podcast dedicated to empowering you to invest for your family's future. Listen in to learn about different strategies successful investors use to live their best lives. Whether you are starting out on your real estate wealth building journey or a seasoned investor looking for the next unfair advantage, this is the show for you. Each conversation will help you be more savvy when it comes to understanding how to leverage real estate to achieve your goals and live an extraordinary life. Your host is none other than seasoned investors and power couple, Jose and Khadija Jafferji, founders of the Savvy Real Estate Group, where we have been helping passive investors grow their wealth and getting them one step closer to financial freedom since 2008. Hey, everybody. Uh, I have Felix here. So uh, without any further ado, Felix, thank you for being on our show. Maybe you can take a moment here and just uh, introduce yourself for those who don't know you. Tell us what a day in the life of Felix looks like right now. Interesting. Well, uh, today's <laughs> thank you for having me on, by the way. Day in the life of Felix. Generally speaking, I, every day is basically very similar to even pre-lockdown days as well. I do have my daughter basically uh, being homeschooled. Actually, no, I'm in online learning, uh, as I'm sure a lot of parents are. Uh, but other than that, uh, trying to enjoy life and uh, embrace opportunities and uh, help my clients out uh, the best that I can. So nothing much has really changed from that perspective. Amazing. Tell us about what got you started in real estate your first property or before that even like your still corporate life and what you got what got you in and what was that motivating factor that you know you wanted to do something different i got started i went through the typical route i'm an immigrant to canada came out to canada almost 42 years ago uh became a, a CACPA, and i thought that that was the route to take in order to uh get ahead in life you know i got into my career even during my article in time, uh, time as a CPA, CA student, and I found out very quickly that my perception of what uh, a career life looked like was very different than reality. And the reality was something that I did not particularly enjoy. And that just came more to fruition the further along I went within my career. I've embraced various challenging roles. I've traveled the world internationally, obtained uh, a ton of international business experience. And it got to the stage where I went through various progressive opportunities, different companies, um, used to be um, a process improvement specialist, then a turnaround specialist, then became a CFO for several organizations. And I felt that at every different step that I took, that I was going to get closer to this sort of thing called happiness or the life that I really wanted to live. The reality was, was, was the total opposite. I felt that the more successful I, I was with my career, the more miserable I got. And the more the things that suffered the most were the things that I felt were the most important to me. So like family life, you know, if you're working 16 hour days, how much family life are you going to have? How much free time are you going to have with them? Finally, in, in 2010, I was a CFO for a multi-unit uh, renovation company, and my wife was pregnant. She was due to basically give birth in February of 2010, but she had gestational diabetes. And the C CEO that I reported to as a CFO, it was a ridiculous dynamic. You know, I, was, I could have been on vacation. He was texting me left and right at, at, at 12 o'clock midnight on a Saturday. You know, or, or on my wife's birthday when I'm taking her out. But it got really ridiculous because my wife had gestational diabetes. So we actually scheduled a, uh, a time for her to get in, uh, her labor induced. And 
provided that information to the CEO saying, you know, my wife is scheduled to, uh, to give birth at this specific date. And unfortunately, my daughter had other plans. She decided to uh, arrive two weeks early. So here I am. My wife went to get her checkup uh, at, at the hospital with the doctor. And uh, a couple of hours later, she gives me a call at around 10 o'clock, 1030 in the morning saying, hey, my water just broke. I'm like going, holy crap. I don't want to leave my, my company behind, like, you know, uh, you know, you know, jump ship right now, basically, to go and uh, hang out with my wife and see her through the labor and everything. I need to basically get my whole team together and kind of, you know, tie up as many of the loose ends as possible. And of course, you know, we were always available by online, you know, we had our Blackberries or whatever. But that was not going through my mind. I was like, I was like going, okay, I need, to, I need to take care of all of this right now. And instead of going to be with my wife, I spent the next four hours, you know, trying to tie up loose ends to the point where the executive assistant to the CEO was telling me, what the heck are you doing here? Go, go be with your wife. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because, you know, our daughter was born finally within the next 24 to 48 hours. And uh, instead of getting a congratulatory phone call from, from the CEO, the guy who I was reporting to at the company, I get this letter. And you, in this letter, you could see that it was kind of uh, sifted through and, and uh, evaluated through the HR department. Like, you, you know, it's not him talking, essentially. And the letter basically indicated something crazy like this. It basically indicated that, hey, you know, you knew when your wife was going to uh, give birth. Now you left us in a bad pos- uh, position because you, you basically decided to depart, uh, leave two weeks in advance. And I was only taking like a one or two week leave to be with my newborn child, our first child. And when I got a letter like that saying, hey, like blaming me essentially that I should have known when my kid was going to be born, that was just like pure insanity. I'm like going, really? Really? Like, <laughs> so at that stage, I'm like going, okay, this is enough. I've sacrificed so much for these for these companies, for these my bosses, uh, given my blood, my sweat, my tears, most of my living hours. And uh, finally, I said, enough is enough. i got to find a different way because ultimately all I'm doing is killing myself by uh, making somebody else successful and making somebody else wealthy while at the same time having no life uh, of my own. That was such a powerful story. Yeah, I, I think that people in the corporate world can definitely relate. I think we've all been there. A lot of real estate investors have been there, right? And that's one of the things that have driven many of us to seek I guess, an alternate lifestyle. But okay, so walk us back in time a little bit. What what year was that? What year sort of was your daughter born? And, you know, how quickly did you make your transition? So she was born in January of 2010. Obviously, you can't just quit cold turkey essentially there and do something else, especially if you don't know what that something else is. Now, real estate was something that I was always interested in, even from a younger age, when I was a teenager. I had a, uh, a friend that uh, whose mom used to invest in houses and used to rent out uh, the main floor units and illegal basement apartments back in the 80s. And we used to get called up from time to time every couple of months saying, hey, my mom needs you. (laughs) What did that mean? That basically meant that uh, his mom had an appliance that broke down in one of the units and they needed to basically move that appliance out and replace it with an equally old appliance into one of these units. Now, back then, these appliances were not like made out of tin cans like they are right now. They weighed as much as a subcompact vehicle. You know, they were made with real steel, not, not tinfoil and plastic. So it needed about four guys just to lift up a stove or a fridge or whatever the case may be and trying to move an equally heavy one, broken one out of the basement unit, for example, or main floor unit. You know, we were lucky if we got out of these uh, uh, fiascos without hernias. <laughs> so... I asked her, why the heck would you ever want to do this? Like, why in the world are you doing this? This is kind of insane to me, right? And she kind of walked me through, like, how the numbers kind of worked, why why she was doing it. What I also noticed is my buddy's parents came to Canada at around the same time as my own parents. But my own parents were renting. You know, we were living in a rental apartment while uh, his family was living in a house. And income-wise, they're about the same. So something must have been different, right? And what she kind of told me, I know this sounds very similar to like a rich dad, poor dad kind of scenario, but 
what she told me is, is essentially this is how they're building wealth. This is how much cash flow they're getting from these properties. And that enabled them to kind of move forward on, on the ladder of life, uh, to spring forward much quicker than somebody who's just focused on their careers. And that kind of stuck with me through high school, through university. I didn't really give it too much thought up until I finished university. Um, but what happened after university is I bought my first condo. We were in the midst of a major recession. I could not even find a, my first articling job as a CA. In fact, I could not find my first job within my profession for a full year after graduating. So I had to do what I had to do. So I kept on working on the jobs that I used to work at uh, to put myself through university. I used to be a cook at a restaurant. I used to work at a gas station uh, doing graveyard shifts. I was working stupid hours. And finally, because I was no longer studying, I decided to undertake a construction job. And there was another um, situation while I was doing construction, you know, waking up at 5.30 in the morning to hit the construction uh, site. We had a rain day. And we were, you know, those like portables that you're basically sitting in. And so there was a bunch of construction workers, and these guys have been doing this for years, sometimes in some cases, decades. And they were complaining. They were going, holy crap, why am I putting up with this shit, right? I should have gone to school. I should have gone on education I should have, to, 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 to make my life better. And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like going, wait a second. I have that education. I went through school. What am I doing here? <laughs> so what I ended up doing is I redoubled my efforts and uh, kept reapplied again to every single accounting firm in the GTA and finally got my first, uh, my first foot in the door. That was kind of an eye-opening experience to me saying, you know what, if you want to accomplish something, don't give up. Just basically keep on trucking, essentially. You will eventually get uh, whatever it is that, uh, that you need. But that led me to my career. And... Subsequent to that, around the same time, but once I got my first job, I went to, uh, uh, I bought my first condo. Actually, my only condo <laughs> ever. I decided to use my OSAP money. So I put myself in university, but I was working throughout the whole time to the point where I was able to repay all of my OSAP uh, loan upon graduation. But instead of repaying the government, I decided to actually use those funds as a down payment on my first property. And the first property I bought was a condo because that was the only thing I could afford. And we renovated that condo, and eventually, you know, it clicked back in. I remembered my, my, my friend's family who was investing in all this real estate. I finally clicked in going, wait a second. The highest and best use for that condo is the three-bedroom condo apartment that I was living in. I could not do anything with it, and I had to pay money out of pocket every single month in order to carry the cost of that property. So I decided, made a decision about just over a year after purchasing it that I was going to sell it. And after real estate commissions, I actually lost five grand on it. That doesn't seem like a lot of money right now, but when you're you know, a newly graduated student, $5,000 is like the world to me. Like I, I have nothing else. Do you remember the price of that condo back then? So yeah, the condo was, uh, we bought it for a whopping $119,000. And a year and a half later, after doing renovations, we sold it for 143. But after real estate commissions and closing costs and land transfer taxes, even back then, I, I ended up losing five grand. So we ended up selling that condo and I decided to buy a semi-detached house instead with a walkout basement. And what we did with that house is, again, we went through a, a bit of a renovation and we rented out the basement uh, bedrooms. It already had a, a three bedrooms. It had a bathroom. It had a kitchen. Not much of a common area. So we rented out those three, three bedrooms to York University students or Seneca students. And those students were providing us with enough rent to pay for all of our mortgage, all of our property taxes, our insurance. In fact, the only thing we were left on the hook paying while living in the three-bedroom suite uh, on top uh, was the utilities. So I went from paying like everything to paying next to nothing, like two, three, four hundred dollars max a month uh, to live in this house. Yeah, we call it house hacking now, right? Well, yeah, before we, the, 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 the term was ever used, right? So I, I have house hacked, exactly. And uh, during that time, uh, my career started taking off. I finally, you know, dot com era hit. I got on board with the whole dot-com era investing. I was 
flying around with like uh, you get these credit card offers, 0% interest, none of this like fee stuff, right? If you want to take advantage of them. And I use those funds in order to invest in uh, stocks during the dot-com era. And I was doing phenomenally well until the, the, the entire bubble burst. <laughs> and then I was stuck with this 120 grand in debt on top. So I went from $5,000 in debt to a couple of years later to $120,000 in debt being less than 25 years old, which is insane. Right. And the thing that bailed my butt out was I, I met my wife. We, we moved in together into our house here. And I finally sold off that other property. And that other property, the first, uh, the house that we bought, the semi, was uh, enabled me to pay off all my debts and provide a, 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 a nice little nest egg moving forward with, uh, with further uh, investment endeavors. So it taught me a very valuable lesson. Real estate, basically, you can make certain mistakes. And by the way, our neighbor next door, the attached neighbor, bought at the very height of the market in the late 80s. So what was interesting during that time is in the late 80s, when they bought at the top of the market, it took 15 years for the, for the property values to, to go back up to what they paid for it. So they bought it, I think, in 88. By 2002, 2003 is when the, the property values hit 275 grand, which is what they paid for it. And the, the interesting part is, Subsequent to that, that's when the real real estate boom began, basically in the GTA. So you can make a ton of mistakes in real estate. This is this is kind of a, a lesson as well that I learned along the way. You can make a ton of uh, mistakes in real estate, but as long as you can weather the storm for as long as it takes, and as long as you invest in the right environment and the right locations, you will end up doing pretty well over the long term. Um, you know. If you're lucky, you can do it faster. If not, then you, it'll take a bit longer, but you'll, you could still do extremely well and you can make mistakes along the way as well. 100%. I mean, from personal experience uh, as well, you know, real estate is kind of forgiving. You can make some mistakes, but, you know, uh, the way that our market has moved, uh, you can absorb those mistakes uh, quite easily. So, you know, I wanted to get back into how you your real estate journey started in in terms of you kind of leaving your job and right after what happened what are the next steps that happened did you get your license uh, real estate license right after that no so i made a decision to leave the corporate world but i knew that that was not going to be realistic so i gave myself a four-year plan four four-year plan four to five-year plan to get out so at that stage i just decided to continue doing what i was doing but undertaking contract roles as opposed to full-time positions that was actually quite lucrative as well, but I was out there with a the mindset of that I'm going to be getting out of this fiasco altogether. So it gave me the flexibility that I needed in order to both earn a living, pay for the bills while I was waiting to make that transition. But at the same time, when uh, I decided to leave that company after my daughter was born, I also decided to figure out what it is that I was going to do as an alternative. And one of the things I started doing was finally investing in real estate as an investor. I'm not talking about a principal residence, but as an investor. And I looked at uh, places like Florida, even before I made that decision, I've always wanted to be a real estate investor, but you know, this whole paralysis analysis, I was evaluating properties in the GTA, even from the early 2000s after, you know, the great experience I've had with that uh, second property that I purchased seen triplexes that required renovations that scared the crap out of me that today, you know, I wouldn't blink twice basically undertaking those type of opportunities. And back then triplexes in, in the very close to where I was living, were going for a whopping $260,000 for a triplex. You know, if you can't cash flow out of that, even with the renovations, I don't know, you're doing something wrong. But to me, it scared the crap out of me because I needed to spend 20, 30 grand, you know? And to me, that was like scary. And today I wouldn't even blink an eye on something like that. But it, but as a new investor, I'm sure that a lot of new investors go through that fear factor, right? You don't know what you don't know. So it took me a while to actually become a real estate investor. It took me about six, seven years of dilly-dallying, you know, looking at other areas like Florida during the financial crisis to the point where I decided, you know what, I need to get in. And by the time I decided to get in, the GTA real estate market was already becoming quite frothy. The numbers did not work as well anymore. So I decided to make my first move uh, as, a, as an investor into areas like Hamilton. However, at that stage, 
after years of doing this analysis paralysis stuff, I just, you know, I've, I felt confident that I can make a go of it and to the point where within a span of about three weeks, I actually had two properties in Hamilton under contract. Yeah. When you decide to go, you go, right? <laughs> and, and by the way, I, you know, Hamilton, I was familiar with my, my in-laws had a business in Hamilton, but I didn't know it like a hole in the wall. Right. So I'm investing in a city that I've never invested in before. I've never lived in that city before. I've been to the downtown core and back in the early 2000s, Hamilton downtown core, you did not want to hang around there. Right. It's a very, very different environment than what it is now. Certainly transitioned substantially since then. Certainly areas like the Hamilton mountain area. Okay. And, uh, you know, jump with two feet in and, uh, at that stage, I was actually in between contracts on top of that. This is the other funny thing. I had no income coming in. And I was able to pick up those properties with 5% down. Uh, they were offering phenomenal mortgages, you know, 35, 40-year mortgages back then. Uh, back then, you could get a mortgage. You know, the qualification requirements to get a mortgage was a heartbeat, <laughs> which, is a, which is a wonderful thing, right? That's all you needed, basically. And uh, decided to take both, both under contract effectively. And I knew deep down inside, like I have faith in myself, that if I throw myself into the, fire, uh, in, into the deep end, I will find a way to swim. And that's what I did. And it kind of ballooned from there. So I guess going forward in time, we've talked a lot about how you got there. Do you mind sharing with us what your portfolio looks like right now? What areas you're invested in? I know you said you started out sort of in Toronto and then you went to Hamilton. You talked a little bit about the US. Um, what sort of maybe break it down for us? What, do, what are you holding right now? Um, what areas are they in? What, what does the whole portfolio basically look like? Sure. I initially started doing rental owns and then figured out like by about 2015, 16, I decided to get out of the whole rental own uh, market. Not because they didn't work. It's just the, given the spike in, in real estate prices, you were leave, leaving a lot of money on the table with rental owns. You would still make a phenomenal profit. Just, you know, how would you feel if you had to sell a property to uh, an end user tenant buyer for, you know, $150,000 less than the fair market value of the property right now? We, we went through the same journey. Yeah. <laughs> right. So in 2015, I decided to change tact. Uh, well, actually before that, I started doing rental owns. I started dabbling in a bunch of real estate strategies. I was doing private money lending. I was doing rental owns. I was doing buy and hold properties. And this was initially within the Hamilton area. Uh, by 2013, I decided to move out into the Brantford area, bought a buy and hold property there and bought a for, uh first and only student rental property because I wanted to get experience in doing student rentals to see what that was all about. And then from there, you know, as I wanted to diversify geographically, so I went and bought a couple of properties with uh, in Barrie. From there, I was usually pretty good at figuring out like what the next best areas were with respect to coming up with the best in an effort to maximize your cash flow and minimize your risk, right? So that kind of led me to in 2016 to Niagara region, uh, which uh, which I'm still focused on. I think it still represents some of the best values in all of the Greater Golden Horseshoe, with both respect to how the numbers work and appreciation and all that good jazz. So, what am I holding right now? In September of uh, 2021, we got rid of that student rental. So, my journey is a bit different than somebody who's starting out, obviously, at this stage. My my focus is very different as well. I'm not looking necessarily to build more of a portfolio base per se, or be an active investor, I'm looking to be much more inactive while still participating in great returns, right? So my portfolio right now, I'm trying to, I've divested, you know, my philosophy is not, you heard of the philosophy, buy low, sell high. My philosophy with respect to real estate, generally speaking, is buy low and never sell. That's generally the case. So that sale of the student rental, it's just, we were cash flowing phenomenally on it. It was cash flowing over $2,000 a month on a single property, which is amazing. But it ate up my soul and time. I, you know, I'm sure uh, you probably have some examples of properties that you've owned where you could write a book on most properties. You know what? Uh, like you, you kind of graduate to a certain level in your real estate investment journey where uh, we are in that similar position where we're not looking to do smaller deals now. We're not looking to do, become extremely active in doing large renovations and managing it ourselves. So our strategy has kind of evolved, and that's why we're now investing in U.S. multifamily. But yeah, I just wanted to 
share that. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Jose and I were talking about that too. And I don't know if this resonates with you, but I was telling him that time is the new sexy. Like everybody's talking about freedom of time. And before I felt like, you know, it was like grind, grind. Everybody was talking about grinding. Like even on social media, like when we first started, everyone was like, yeah, you know, I'm out there grinding. Like, you know, I worked a 60 hour week. I'm hitting the ground. I'm doing all these deals. And now what I'm seeing is so much different. Like I listened to a couple of podcasts recently. It was like, yeah, I'm working 20 hours. I'm delegating. I got this virtual assistant. Like it's a very different vibe. And not like we're feeling the exact same thing. We're like, oh man, like we need to slow down. You know, (laughs) it's an interesting shift. And it's so funny because you were talking about all that stuff in other countries and how here it's it's always been about grinding, right? And I don't know, I still feel a little bit awkward when I say that to people, friends or other people. Are, like I, I almost feel awkward being like, yeah, I only want to work 20 hours a week and people looking at me like, what? <laughs> well, well, to be fair, I mean, like it took, a, it took a, and I'm sure you can probably relate to this as well. It, it took us a, a, a number of years of grinding and, and working our butts off in order to get us to this point where we can afford and do those type of things and only work as many hours as we really want to. Uh, so I, I don't I don't want to minimize and, and, and tell people, hey, you can basically just do a 20 hour work week and achieve financial freedom coming out of university. That's not necessarily going to work. You're going to have to do that grinding. No, no. And, and same thing with us. I mean, we've been. Oh, uh, yeah. We've been grinding for, for years. We're for still grinding. Uh, we, we've been investing <laughs> for over 10 years now. So, you know, there might be some listeners out there. We don't want to give the wrong impression that we might be on chapter 10 or 15 while some someone else starting off might be in chapter two they still need to get to that you know it's it, it's not an overnight success with but i guess i i mean hours. maybe i should clarify i guess what i was what i was trying to go where i was trying to go with that was that hey like sometimes you're at this juncture where you face this decision where i could make more money right? It's not about the fact that I think that working less, I'm going to make more money. It's more so like, you know, I, there's got to be that balance at some point in your business where you say, hey, maybe I don't want to do another duplex conversion because that's going to suck up another five hours or 10 hours per week of my time. So maybe I'll take a lower return that's more passive, for example, to free up more time. So you come to these junctures within your business where you're, you know, it comes down to your values and what really what kind of lifestyle you're trying to build, right? Well, maybe to clarify, I mean, like uh, I find that the first, I'd say about two to five years of your real estate investment journey are your toughest. You're grinding at that stage and you're grinding because you have more time than, than assets. If you, after the first three to five years, you fe- you'll find yourself that you're in a position where you built equity in, in your, in your portfolio that you can redeploy into other opportunities. And that's what I found right now as well. Right. So you need to put in that time initially if you don't have the capital immediately available, because you need the time value uh, in order for the, your assets to appreciate, for those mortgages to get paid down a little bit, to enable you to pull out that equity. Once you, you're able to do that, then yeah, the world of opportunities start opening up uh, left and right. Um, and yes, the new sexy is basically time, but most people can't afford that time. The, you know, Most people are ingrained in their mind that they have to work their butts off in order to, to, to get that time, but you can't get that time unless you work your butts off, right? It's a negative feedback loop. So it's it's a it's a great opportunity, like it's it's a great vehicle for to enable people to achieve that. But you, I don't want you know novice investors thinking they they'll they'll be able to do it that quickly. You can certainly ex- do things to expedite that process. Certainly, you know I've had uh, clients that have been able to achieve that time frame much quicker with a bit of both uh, grinding, you know working full-time jobs, doing, doing what they needed to do. But at the same time, they, they were like on fire. They were going one property next. You know, they were utilizing the birth strategy, for example, right? And then, of course, Mr. Market helped them out as well, especially with the appreciation rates we've had. You know, a little luck always helps out as well. Tell us your uh, perspective on the, you know, uh, what the two next uh, one or two years is going to look like, yeah, especially in the GTA, and, and, and maybe we can globally as well for sure so um the gta market toronto for several decades has been an underperforming international city but that was actually to the benefit of the people the residents that were living there because it made housing much more affordable than a lot of the other international cities like new york hong kong uh, san francisco 
Unfortunately, over the last 15 years, it has come into its own. Now we have some of the most expensive real estate uh, prices in the world, but we also have some of the best real estate dynamics in the world as well, whereby we're accepting around 400, at least based on government uh, targets, 420,000 immigrants coming into, uh, into Canada every year. That does not include international students. That does not include non-residents that are also basically applying for immigration. So we're looking at around a half a million do- people plus coming into um, Canada, and probably around 40 to 60% of those are trying to make their way into the Greater Golden Horseshoe. Toronto specifically, but they're finding that they can't afford to live in Toronto, so they're looking into uh, going into some of these outlying areas. As a result, I, I believe that the market will continue growing. I believe that the real estate demand is, we have an undersupply of housing that people actually need all across the region, and especially low-rise housing. Okay, or or multiplexes where people are buying apartment buildings, um, but generally speaking, you know, what what are the builders producing right now? They're producing condos, right? Because land is expensive. So if if you can, if anybody is looking to invest in property and they want to have a gem, try to buy a property that's low rise, non condo, anywhere in the Greater Golden Horseshoe, because they're not really building any more of that stuff. Because it's too damn expensive for people. Even in a place like Niagara region, you know, a townhouse, a brand new townhouse is going for anywhere between seven hundred and fifty to eight hundred thousand dollars for a brand new townhouse, which is insane. Yeah, that is absolutely crazy. Right? Yeah. That's like that's like Mississauga like two years ago. Yeah. Already, you know? Yeah. It's insane. I mean, and you you've probably seen this yourselves uh, over the years. As real st- as land prices have sp- spiked. Builders have stopped building these fully detached houses. They start building these smaller units, semis, then then townhouses. And instead of a hundred foot uh, deep lot, now it's an eighty foot lot. You know, they're trying to put in big monstrosity houses with almost no backyards and no land. And now they most people cannot afford even those uh, townhouses in Mississauga, or or in places like Welland, Ontario, right? Where like a new build is going. A townhouse is going for 800 grand, which is insane as well. So the general population cannot afford that. And the reason why that's happening is because real inflation rates are running way higher than, than post-inflation rates, government post-inflation rates. And so if you're looking for opportunities, go, go low rise while you still can. Because what the builders are, you know, builders will continue building, but what they're going to continue building is high rise, right? So there's going to be more supply of that, whereas the low rise supply is going to continue dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. And many of these municipalities are running out of land or are out of land. Like uh, cities like Burlington don't have any more greenfield land. Cities like St. Catharines, no more greenfield land. I'm sure people are aware of the whole uh, Greenbelt. You know, we have like a Manhattanization of the whole uh, region uh, where we have the lake to the south and the Greenbelt to the north. And really no land to build, uh, very little land left to build on. So either you, you, you pay the premium by living within the Greater Golden Horseshoe or you increase your commuting times to go just outside of the green belt. Those are the only two choices. If you want to still kind of be within the sphere of uh, the GTA market. And it, honestly, you're, you're still participating in the, in the Toronto real estate market, but indirectly, right? Uh, you, the same dynamic supply, you're just buying it for, you know, uh, that same property for one third, to, one half to one third the value of what it would cost in the GTA. Oh, that's a great point that you brought up but, uh, about, uh, you know, the low rise being basically nobody no developers building that on a large scale at least so that is essentially going to be a scarce product in the future absolutely and on top of that this the the product that is really required right now the builders have not even started building yet we as individual investors one of the best strategies that people undertake right now is converting single family homes into multi units the problem is the, the most conducive properties for that sort of conversion is a bungalow. How many bungalows have been built over the last 30 years? Anywhere in the Greater Golden Horseshoe. Actually, anywhere in Canada. Forget about anywhere in Greater Golden Horseshoe. They're building two-story houses, right? The builders have not even caught on to what the market requires because those type of products are going to be a requirement. If you want to own a low-rise house, but you cannot afford to buy that low-rise house, Purpose building duplexes, triplexes to enable multi-generational families from moving into them. So maybe individually they can't afford it. Maybe coming together as two, three families, they might be able to afford that property. 
or they might not be able to afford it themselves, but you know they might be willing to basically live on the main floor and have a basement unit that's basically uh, uh, subsidizing a portion of their carrying costs. And that way, it makes it a bit more affordable as well. And most builders are not clued in on that yet. Instead, they're focusing on building townhouses while they still can. Instead, they're building high-rise ho- uh, housing, such as condos, very little in the way of apartment buildings, because the builders don't want to undertake the risk. Right. They don't want to undertake the risk of basically, you know, tenants and everything else. For them, it's easy for them to build a condo, sell it to an end user buyer, cash out. I'm out. I'm done. Right. As opposed to building an apartment building where they have to fill it up with tenants and then find a a pension fund or a REIT in order to buy that asset. Right. They don't want to undertake that risk. So as a result of that, there's going to be a shortage of housing that people actually need in the in the greater Golden Horseshoe, actually all across Canada. And that's going to be supportive of uh, real estate prices moving forward. Unless, of course, the government decides to cut off all immigration altogether. You know, cold turkey, I don't think that's going to happen, right? We need we, we have a declining birth rate in Canada, as with most westernized nations. And we need immigration uh, in this in this country to pay for our government's fiasco uh, spending over here. Somebody's going to have to pay the bill, right? 100%. So Felix, um, with um, I mean, obviously with the prices rising, uh, it, two things. One thing, what, how much more can they rise? How much more do you think we're going to get a rise over the next couple of years? And what does that mean for investors? Like, is, Do you think that there's going to come a point where investors are essentially not going to be able to invest in this market in some form? Because we've always been taught and our principle is you don't buy speculatively, you buy based on positive cash flow, all of that stuff. And, and and obviously the duplex conversion strategy was instrumental even when we started in order to make the numbers work. But the numbers are continu- you know, continuing to rise. And you're, like you're saying, there's no more supply. It's hard to find those bungalows. Like bungalows are going for close to a million dollars in Hamilton now, right? I don't know. You know better than me uh, what like, the current like, state is. But like I mean, duplex, uh, uh, yeah, like a duplex, right? Um, you know, how much longer do people have and, and, and what... You know, is, is there going to be a, a time where, where investors, it just doesn't make sense around here anymore? A hundred percent. I mean, like if you're looking at, um, forget about Toronto right now, think about cities like New York, San Francisco. I mean, these have been like sky high real estate markets for decades. So you have, people have to understand who can afford these real estate assets, right? Either you're well-to-do, you, you have like a ridiculously high paying job, or you were lucky enough to get into the market when prices were a heck of a lot more affordable. And that enables you to now make a transition either to downsize or to upsize, you know, to undertake an additional mortgage of about $400,000 when you bought that property, you know, 10, 15 years ago for $300,000 is not a big move. You know, $400,000 mortgage is not a big deal these days versus somebody who has to buy that same property right now for two, two and a half, three million dollars in Toronto and undertake a more and come up with 20% and down on top of that. Who the heck is going to come up with that cash? Number one, number two. Who the heck is earning, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in income in order to carry that property? And the reality is, not many people at all, right? So there's a correlation, and even if you're a renter, there's people don't seem to understand. There's actually a correlation between real estate prices and rental rates. And rental rates are spiking, just like real estate prices. But the problem is, rental rates are not spiking as quickly as the real estate prices. And eventually you come to the position that you've come to in the GTA market, where your people who are renting are paying sky-high rents, but even with those sky-high rents, they're not sufficient enough to carry a property with only a 20% down payment. And what you end up with is a bunch of speculators who are causing the market to shoot up higher, but eventually there will come a plateau. You know, The market can only bear so much. If you're trying to rent out that unit, you know, and it, it, you're carrying costs of like five, six thousand dollars a month, will you, do you, can you find tenants that are willing or who can pay that? And the answer, generally speaking, is no, right? So it's a huge issue uh, within the GTA. So the opportunities uh, from that perspective then become, okay, how, how do you find affordable housing? Whether you're a first-time buyer, an investor, or or looking uh, to either rent or buy. Well, it's very simple. You throw a stone in the middle of Lake Ontario and see where the ripples take you uh, to find the house that you can afford that actually meets your need, right? That's, it's as simple as that. And that's essentially what's driving the real estate market in these outlying areas right now. As, as less expensive as they are in the GTA, they have, um, uh, they have experienced some of the highest appreciation in all of the, in, in all of the region as a result because they represent more affordable housing options for housing that people actually need. 
And the pandemic has exasperated the trend that has been already ongoing, which is uh, people telecommuting. It just the pa- pandemic has just you know fast tracked that trend even further. So now you can still work for for a, a Toronto employer, but you don't necessarily have to live in Toronto as long as you have an internet connection. Heck, you can do your work in Hong Kong or or the Bahamas if you feel like it, right? So, but uh, the good news is, I mean, you can still basically live in a place like St. Catharines or Barrie even having your social network in Toronto. And on the weekends, you can still see your family. You can still meet up with your friends or, and they can visit each other. You can visit them. They can visit you. You're still within commuting distance. So you so you don't have to give up that social network. So that's the trend that will continue uh, moving forward. But even then, that has a limited timeline as well to the point where the market will simply not be able to bear that price either, in which case you're moving to the lowest common denominator, which is condos, you know, and unfortunately, even then, you're going to get to a situation where the market will no longer be able to bear that. So people will have to move further and further out. Yeah. So what do you think are going to be the new investment opportunities in 2022 and beyond? What would make the numbers work? Um, I know that you personally have done uh, triplex conversions now and um you know, perhaps multifamily and some land development. I know people are getting into different creative strategies. There's always going to be some kind of opportunity, but, you know, what do you think uh, people should be watching out for? For sure. Uh, so two-year conversions still work in some of these areas, outlying areas, even Hamilton. But the problem is now you might have to be satisfied with maybe a cash flow neutral position in those municipalities. Because if you have to buy a property – um, even before conversions, you know, a decent location, a good neighborhood, you know, before conversions, you're looking at a property value of around eight, eight fifty, before any renovations. And now you got to dump another hundred and fifty grand. Now, you, now you're basically in it for a million dollars, right? You can still achieve a little bit of cash flow in those ones, but for not too much longer. So if you go into places like uh, Niagara region, you can do better. Triplex conversions are certainly an excellent, excellent opportunity because, you know, the incremental cost to create that third unit is only about $50,000, $60,000. Payback is only around three to five years. But uh, the cash flow numbers work phenomenally well. But even that has a limited time opportunity as well, right? And very few municipalities allow for that to begin with. Okay, so where are the opportunities? Since I've already built my, my real estate portfolio, like the ones that I want to be active in, the question is is twofold. It, it depends on whether you're starting to in your investment journey as a real estate investor, or whether you've already established some, a decent portfolio and want to continue growing growing your wealth. So, if you're starting out, you're looking into these you know further out municipalities. Maybe have to undertake uh, uh, buy properties that might not be in the best areas of town. The good news is they're all transitioning right now. And even though they might not be in the best of areas of town, they'll probably experience the highest appreciation as a result because a rising tide lifts all ships. And, you know, if a pool of buyers can't afford to live in Forest Hill, they'll start looking at areas like Regent Park and Jane Finch. And eventually those areas will transition as well. Like Liberty Village is a perfect example of that. In the mid-90s, you wouldn't want to be caught dead in there and start growing your real estate portfolio that way. If you're a more established investor, then you can start doing what I've started doing, leveraging off of the equity we've built in our portfolio of assets, refinancing those 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 opportunities because the banks are willing to still lend you at, at ridiculously low rates, you know, one and a half, two and a half percent mortgages. And it, it all comes down to, can I make a, a better return than one and a half to two percent? And in all instances, my answer is yes. You know, I usually target returns of around anywhere from 12 and a half to 100 percent annually. Right. So I'll take that deal any day for more established individuals. It's more about if you if you value time, what's most important is to basically start finding opportunities where you could take a seat back. You're in the passenger seat as opposed to being the active real estate investor, maybe giving up a, a chunk of the return, which is perfectly fine. Right. Because everybody it has to be a win win situation for everyone. But if you can generate returns of, let's say, you know, 20 percent plus per year. Right, borrowing from a bank of one and a half, or two percent, or two and a half, or even three percent. Opportunities abound. I mean, there's an abundance of opportunities there. So things there to consider. You can basically uh, do private equity deals with builders. You can uh, you can be uh, get involved with syndicated equity deals. So for example, you want to buy, uh, be an investor in apartment buildings, right? And I'm sure uh, Jose, uh, you guys do this as well. We might not. Oh, we we might not have 
hundreds of millions of dollars, but we can participate in, in, in these hundred million dollar plus deals in some cases, or 15, 20 million dollar deals as a fractional owner, right? And, and that is the main reason why we, you know, we saw the same thing. The, the trend was that prices are getting ridiculously high here. On a large scale, you 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 can always get opportunities on on some uh, here here and there, but on a large scale, where's the next opportunity? And that's why we decided to explore the U.S. market. I wanted to touch a little bit on why right now is such a crucial time in history where people need to put their money in hard assets, and you know how inflation is uh, playing that accelerating. Uh, the impact on, you know, devaluing them your your dollars essentially. Absolutely. And, and by the way, this is not an, just like uh, an Ontario or Toronto issue or GTA issue or Great Golden Horseshoe issue, an Ontario issue. It's not even a Canada issue. This is a worldwide issue right now, right? And what's happened? I'm, I'm sure you remember Jose. Like when we were starting to invest, if if somebody owned a property, the percentage of people owning more than one property was like something like two and a half percent. In a period of only about 10, 12 years, now that same individual is one in four. Now <laughs> more than one property. Okay, so what's happening is you're seeing a monetization of the real estate market, which it doesn't matter whether you agree with this methodology and what's happening, essentially, it's happening. And the reason why, but there's a reason why it's happening. And you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's, it's inflation. And the inflation uh, is spiking ridiculously high right now, given that the government as a direct result of governments printing unprecedented amounts of cash and in flooding the, the financial systems with a ridiculous amount of cash. And that cash, unfortunately, is not hitting Main Street wallets. It's going into financial institutions who are looking at ways to generate a return on, on those funds. And they're not generating the returns by giving those loans to small businesses, right? That's too risky, especially in the pandemic environment. Right. You want to you want to give a loan to a restaurant right now or a health club? You know, I, I screen tenants. I'm not even crazy about basically undertaking tenants. They're basically waiters, waitresses or, or health uh, care for, uh, or, or health club professionals. Not because I don't want to. It just they're a high risk tenant now because I don't know if they're going to have a job. I don't know if they're going to get paid. Right. And banks probably have the same methodology. So what are they looking to do? They're looking to redeploy those funds. And um, the way that they're doing it is by lending it through to real estate investors and real estate buyers. And it's happening across the world because what's happening is government posted inflation rates, you know, in Canada, you're looking at what, four and a half, five percent 5%. But the reality is the cost of everything that we as human beings need have spiked way higher than four and a half, five percent 5%. And, uh, you know, we're looking at food prices. If you've been to a grocery store lately, if you've been to a gas station lately, if you've if you've tried to basically rent an apartment or to buy a house lately, they're not prices are not going up by four and a half five percent. They're going up by 15, 20. and if you look at housing, in some cases 35, 40, 50 percent on an annual loss basis. So this is this cannot continue indefinitely, right? And and people in the know who have survived these hyperinflation in, in environments know that the way to protect yourself is to buy hard assets, especially hard assets that can generate income. And there's very few hard assets that can generate income much better than real estate, right? You can buy gold, you can buy silver, but you're not going to get an income uh, stream out of it, right? With real estate, you can. And uh, it's sad. And that's also a great point because, you know, the whole trend right now is people buying crypto and, you know, <laughs> NFT, this, this whole new digital currency world. Um, but essentially it's not generating income for people, right? And that's one of the most fundamental rules that I remember Rich Dad always, Robert Kiyosaki said, income producing assets. And say, I agree with you 100%. And by the way, there are ways to generate income with NFTs and Bitcoin as well, but the reality is they're relatively new assets classes. And I think that a lot of people are investing. It's not really investing. I think a lot of people are speculating in those asset classes because Everybody's chasing this whole shiny shiny objects syndrome, right? Like get rich quick, right? They're seeing they're seeing this massive volatility in uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, in NFTs, and everybody wants to jump onto the bandwagon. A bandwagon. Remember, I play. I've I've gone through this game before during the dot com era, right? I've seen uh, I've seen how this kind of ends uh, eventually. And the problem with NFTs and, and cryptos right now is 
yes, they have some sort of a value, but nobody can really tell you what that value is, right? It's whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. Now, it's similar to Toronto real estate prices. It's exactly the same thing, right? There's no rhyme or reason why, why, why price. Well, there is some, some underlying reasons why cost of housing is what it is, but it does not mean that it can not double from here above and beyond what the underlying price should be, right? So inflation can only explain a portion of what's happening, right? You get market euphoria can, can raise these prices significantly higher. And Maynard Keynes, who's the fa father of fiscal economics, you know, back in the 1920s, he used to dabble in, he thought that he had an edge as an economist to dabble in the stock market. And he got burned big time, right? And he had this quote, he's saying that the market can stay irrational for much longer than you can stay solvent. Okay, and that's true with any asset class, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's real estate, whether it's uh, anything. But if you do, if you invest with income in mind, with cash flow in mind, you know, take appreciation off the table, you're looking for safety. You're looking to basically an insurance policy to help you weather any storm. If you can basically, real estate hits the, that bill. And the reason why it hits that bill is because if the market tanks tomorrow and I'm collecting rent from my tenants, what has really changed for me? other than the underlying value of my assets, which I don't really give a crap about. I, I, give, uh, I give more crap about basically how much that asset base, uh, how much income that asset base is generating. But if the real estate prices go down by 50%, but I'm still generating the same income as, as before, how am I impacted? I'm not, right? That's what I love about real estate is that, you know, you got so many different ways to make money and, Cash flow obviously is the most the paramount. Appreciation is just you know an impact when you're buying or selling or refinancing. Yeah, and you see this happening in the stock market as well. There's a euphoria in the stock market. The reason why people are investing in these other assets, higher risk assets in some cases, uh, whether they're the shit coins as they say, or or or, or stock market or anything else, and the valuations are ridiculous. Like they. People are throwing fundamentals out the door these days. The reason why this is happening is because nobody's earning any return keeping their money in a bank account. In fact, your money is, is deflating. Your buying powers of your dollars are deflating substantially every year. So if, if government posted inflation rates are 5%, but the real inflation rates are 15%, that means that your buying power of your dollars, if, and by the way, the banks are, only, are paying less than 1%, right? That means that... If the real inflation rates are 15%, but you're only getting 1%, and you put $100 in your bank account today, that means that your buying power of that $100 a year from now is only $86. And that's only after one year. Now do this on and on for a period of five to six years, and that $100 is worth nothing almost, right? And, and that's why it's very important to own hard assets in hyperinflationary environments. Even if it's, you know, if, if you're dealing with inflation rates of 100%, Buy any hard asset. Go buy a washing machine. At least it will retain value versus the money that you have in your bank account. I'm not kidding. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we see that trend continuing this year as well in 2022. Continuing money printing by pretty much everyone in the world. Every uh, reserve in the world. And uh, um, we're going to see that, especially like multifamily and um, these kinds of residential asset classes increasing in value. I should add one last thing. I mean, there's been talks about central bankers becoming more hawkish, increasing interest rates and all that good jazz as well, right? Because they need to fight inflation. I personally think that the central bankers all across the world, most areas around the world, are caught between a rock and a hard spot. On the one hand, yes, they need to fight inflationary forces because they, this cannot continue going indefinitely. Because as much as we as real estate investors or hard asset owners are building wealth, it also means that others who do not own hard assets, who depend on an income from a job or any fixed income, right, are getting decimated. And this can only continue so so far. I mean, we're it's concerning because stuff like this is is cause is what what a lot of wars have been waged over. Revolutions have been uh, fought over this sort of stuff. Because if people can't put food in their belly or a roof over their head, people will uprise against the governments. So the governments need to do something uh, in order to stop that from happening. And on the one hand, the central bankers are saying, yes, we're going to be increasing rates. But by increasing rates, 
you're going to really basically, you know, put the hard brakes on the economy. People start losing jobs as bad as they have it right now. They're going to have it even worse. So I don't think that the central bankers, I think they're more talk, they're more bark than bite when it comes to uh, their uh, desire to increase rates. It's not that it's wrong for them to increase rates. It's just I don't think from a political perspective, it makes any sense for them to do so because from uh, anybody who, who's in power politically right now, risk the chance of losing power by, by uh, putting the brakes on the economy by, by spiking the rates higher. So I think we'll probably see a bit of talk about it, but I don't think there's going to be a lot of movement with respect, actual movement in interest rates uh, moving forward. And if there is, we've got bigger issues to, uh, to deal with as well, because the government is a bit hypocritical, don't forget. They're, they're telling us that, hey, all these Canadians, you know, the, the amount of debt you're undertaking is, is unsustainable. Uh, okay, what about you guys? <laughs> yeah, we're learning from the best, right? Yeah, um, yeah we're learning from the creator of the debts. Yeah. Exactly. And you know what? We're just playing the same games as investors. Uh, really, there's a, a opportunities abound because all we're doing is playing the same games that the government is playing with us, right? Because by undertaking debt, you're actually making money. So remember that example I gave you with respect to the bank accounts. You know, you put a hundred bucks in, uh, and an inflation rate is, is running at fifteen. You, you pay one percent. So your money is worth only 86 cents on a dollar, right? Well, that works exactly the same way, but to your benefit. So if you take $100 in, in a mortgage debt, right, and inflation is running at 15% and you only have to pay the bank 1.5% in interest, well, guess what? Your debt is, is in real terms of decreased in value by 13.5%. And by the way, because you're in a higher, higher inflationary environment, your, your property values you have appreciated substantially as well because it's, it's adjusting to real inflation rates. Your mortgage paid is being paid down. You're generating, and if you're doing it properly, you're generating positive cash flow. So now with this hyperinflationary environment, now we're also get benefiting from the deflation of, of our liabilities as an additional fourth income stream uh, as real estate investors, which is insane, right? But all we're doing is playing the same game that the government is trying to, to, to play to deflate their own debt because there's, you know, they, they can't increase productivity enough in order to pay off the debt, Right. Defaulting on debt is like that's Armageddon. You thought the financial crisis was crazy. Can you imagine the, the, the U.S. Uh, defaulting on their debt? It's not going to happen. Right. And if it does happen, the whole financial world is basically collapsed at that stage. Right. So their only other option is to inflate the crap out of it, deflate their debt. And the way they do it is by basically posting BS inflation rates while letting real inflation rates run their course. So. Right. Right. So if, if real if they're posting five percent, but real inflation rate is twenty percent or fifteen percent, you know, fifteen minus five percent is ten percent, and they have trillions of dollars. Well, their their trillions of dollars have just de gone devalued by ten percent by the delta, and that's the game that they're playing. And we as real estate investors can take advantage of, of playing the same games that our government is playing with us. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting perspective and an interesting way of putting it, I guess. But yeah, we are on time here. Um, honestly, we, we, we love talking about this stuff and, and, and you, you're so eloquent in the way that you put everything. So say it way better than we do. So thank you for sharing your perspective on all, all of that, especially the economics of it. I think it's really important for people to understand. It's, this is so important. Nobody's thinking about it. Nobody's talking about it, but we need to think about it. Everybody needs to think about it. Even people who are just working and are high income earners, um, you know, what is the value of that dollar, right? So, and what's that, what's, what's the value of your savings and what are they going to, what is it going to be moving forward? And how low is your job, right? Like uh, you're, you're getting paid in those dollars as well. And unfortunately your wages are maybe tracking government posted inflation rates. So you, you might be making more every year, but you're actually falling behind. You're finding it harder and harder to make ends. Oh, hundred percent. That's, that's exactly. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. If your job, you're not getting a raise by 15% or, or around there, then you're essentially losing money. Yeah. Every year. Your buying power is, yeah, absolutely. So Felix, um, we will put it in our show notes, but if there's anybody who wants to get in touch or contact you, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, do you are you on Facebook, Instagram, uh, website, anything like that? Yep. Um, I, I am on Facebook. Um, you can reach me uh, via email at uh, Felix at cloud, C-L-O-U-D, the number nine, life.ca. 
or you can uh, join my Facebook group uh, page, cloud9life.ca, or direct. Uh, you can direct message me on Facebook as well or LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm not really, I'm not really very active on st- stuff like Instagram and and whatnot, but I do like to basically post, uh, you know, read between the lines with respect to the media and post uh, post things that people should uh, should uh, information that people should actually know. Uh, and and learn about uh, and see exactly what's happening in in, in the real world uh, versus what we're being disseminated in the media. Yeah, no, I, I almost uh, think of you, Felix, as like a whistleblower to the you know to, <laughs> to what's actually happening and what's happening behind the scenes, behind the curtain about you know our economy and uh, what goes um, you know the inflation and so on. Yeah, so thank you so much, so much for sharing, for sharing that. We, that. We really uh, enjoyed it. No, this has been a blast, guys. I, I really appreciate the time as well. And I uh, wish you both a healthy, happy, and uh, insanely prosperous 2022 to yourselves and your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. You too. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Savvy Real Estate Investor Show. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If you liked this episode, please write a review and share it with us. We are getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase how investors at any level can start using and leverage real estate to become savvy wealth builders. If you want to learn more about how we can potentially help you create more passive income and build your wealth faster, go to www.savvyrealestateinvestor.com. Once again, it's www.savvyrealestateinvestor.com. All right, that's a wrap. We can't wait to hang out with you on the next episode.